0: I hope you're glad to be here. Uh, James 5 verse 9, that's where we're going to start this morning. And today we're going to see James continue along the lines of being steadfast, being patient. Anybody here besides me have a problem with patience? It's tough, isn't it? Being patient, being so with God, being so with one another. This is where we left off two Sundays ago. I'll continue reading to you now from verse Nine. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. James uses the word brothers here. This means these are Christians he is talking to, this younger brother of Jesus who's writing this. They're members of his church. Do not grumble against one another. Okay, if he's telling them, do not grumble against one another, what are they doing, do you think? They're grumbling against one another. They're in tiffs. They're in fights. They're at each other's throats. They're pitted against one another. These Christians, okay, don't grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. And behold, the judge is standing at the door. Uh, in the the last time we were in James two weeks ago, we talked a lot about being under pressure. True or false, when you're under pressure, I almost prayed that song. Did I say prayed? I almost played that song this morning, under pressure, as like an intro. It's just such a smooth groove. Do you know which one I'm talking about? Um, You can become, true or false, when you're under a lot of pressure, heavily burdened. Yes or no? We become anxious, we become worried, uh, we become fretful, Um, we feel weighed down, we feel sad. You can lose, and this is the overall theme of James 5, your patience. Can you not? When you're stressed? How many of you are, are here and thinking, I'm not like that, but the person that I'm with is really like that? Anybody just raise your hand, okay? We notice these things in one another, but the truth is that we're all like that. And the last time we were in this book, we, I, I brought in a backpack and I used the illustration um, that we all carry burdens and, and weights. Let me ask you this. How many, how many of you find that when your burden increases, when life kind of constricts around you, that your patience decreases, that the two are indirectly correlated? Yes? Um, Here's what happens in Pastor James' church. Here's what could happen in our church. Here's what could happen in any church. When pressure comes on the local church and pressure increases, the brothers and sisters in Christ, their patience decreases, and they begin grumbling. That's what happens. James confronted it in this large church in Jerusalem. Just think, if you will, of the Exodus. The Exodus is a very real story. The Exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. It's kind of like the tried and true pastoral biblical example that we bring to people when we want to talk about grumbling. Okay? Um, I'm going to this example this morning, obviously. And, and in the Exodus story, who in particular are the people of Israel do you remember grumbling at? Yeah. Moses, their leader, who else? God, right? Why in the world, God, why in the world would you give us Moses as a leader? He murders people. He stutters. Varying levels of offense, right? Murdering people and stuttering. Not exactly on the same page. Why bread for breakfast every day? We hate bread. I have a gluten allergy. God, why all this bread? Bread, bread, bread. Why are we circling? I just saw this tree last October. Why? We passed by these rocks in 1434 B.C., now we're passing by them again in 1431 BC. This is getting old. God, when's this all going to be over? And in the Exodus narrative, the people are grumbling against God and Moses. Here in James, they're all grumbling toward each other. God, why haven't you given me better friends? God, why haven't you given me a better spouse? These people, they, they annoy me. They're inconsiderate. They're critical. Why, Lord, why? And what often happens when people get under pressure is that they become selfish. And they think that the world revolves around them and they feel that their grumbling in some way vindicates them. I've made this error a plethora of times. I'll say that again. I want to be very clear in different words. When people are suffering and under pressure, all of a sudden they start to see their relationships as a big circle with themselves sitting in the center. And they say things like this, you all need to pay attention to me. You all need to be available to me. You all need to serve me. You all need to help me. You need to be sympathetic towards me. You exist should you forget to orbit around me. We don't say that, but we feel it, do we not? We think it. And what this can do in a culture, um, among a few is to become the culture of the manny. James is reminding us, don't forget that when you carry your burdens, other people are carrying burdens too. You are not the only person under pressure. You're not the only person in, in life who's anxious. You're not the only individual that's worried okay and we all have a burden to bear we all have a full backpack at times and we're all yes going to the same kingdom in heaven it's just that we're not all there yet we have that in common and along the way James is telling us to be patient he said and we read it last week patience bears fruit we get this agrarian uh, gardening, if you will, analogy. God is producing fruit in people. We're not. Uh, we're just now the Burris family getting our first tomatoes. It is glorious. It is awesome. A couple of them are ripening more in the in the windowsill. We planted them Memorial Day weekend, right? That's been a while. That was May. This is now August. Half of our garden we have yet to enjoy. We are still waiting. My okra is this big right now. That's frustrating. What are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying that people in your church, let's just bring this present day, your brothers and sisters in Christ, are still growing. They're still growing. Don't be perturbed by them. Be patient with them. James is telling us the remedy for grumbling is persevering in your relationships. Is remaining steadfast in your relationships. I don't know if you're if you're, how many of you have ever had a migraine headache? Okay, we don't know a lot about them in spite of many years of, of study. It seems that there's still this big enigma that we can't figure out. But we know that they're exacerbated by noise and light. And that when people have them, they are extremely sensitive Um, And it's overwhelming. Our context becomes overwhelming. Right or wrong, life and relationships can seem like migraines at times. Friendships can seem like migraines at times. Children can seem like migraines at times. Your spouse can seem like a big fat migraine at times, right? And we say things like this, I'm at the end of my rope with you. This is the last straw. And James is saying, no, here's what you need to say when you have a relational migraine and you begin to get grumpy. Look, I'm in a difficult place right now. I'm discerning that I'm starting to get grumpy. Grumpier. Grumpy-est, perhaps. I need you to know that it's probably not you. It's probably just me. When you see me impatient, when you see me curt, when you see me aggravated, I need you to be patient with me. I need you to be slow to speak. Why? Why? Because God has yet to fully establish my heart. He used those words, establish the heart. James did a few verses earlier. I'm still growing. I've yet to produce all the fruit that I'm going to produce. Please be patient. James is saying toward each other. And we don't have the self-awareness and the self-management at all times. I'm growing in both of those capacities slowly. Slowly, but we don't have this. sit. My staff will tell you. I sit around staff meeting, and I start finding myself get frustrated, and I tell them, I just want everybody to know that I'm aware <laughs> that I'm getting frustrated. I'm aware of it. I didn't used to be aware of it. It just would keep snowballing until all of a sudden I'd get upset. Now I'm aware of it, and now I can start managing it before it gets out of hand. But we will have times where no amount of self-awareness Or self management will be able to stop our emotions and we will grumble and we will blow it relationally and we may even do something unhelpful and unharmful. And how many of you know when that happens, a great thing to do as a Christian brother or sister is to apologize? Do you know that apologizing is healthy? Do you know that apologizing is godly? Do you know that humbling ourselves and saying I'm sorry is something that we ought to be doing as a reg- on a regular basis as fallen people to each other not under our breath <laughs> I'm really sorry that I did that but I won't tell anybody <laughs> to the person we've offended that's what takes courage Let's just practice it together let's say I'm sorry together you ready I'm sorry Okay, let's try it again. It's difficult, isn't it? Let's try it again. I'm sorry. Let's say it one more time. I'm sorry. Christians need to be about the business of saying, I'm sorry. Not in a self-defeating way. It's an acknowledgement. Honey, what I said to you, what I did, the response I gave you, it was not commensurate of what you did. It was not proportional. I'm sorry for that. I blew it. I'm I'm not excusing what I did. I'm explaining that I understand what I did. I am sorry and saying I'm sorry. How many of you how many of you know? How many of you know? I was just I was just I'll just tell you this story. I probably won't share this in this service because my my mom and dad and my 88-year-old grandfather are going to be here. But we were just having a family discussion on the couches just the other night about a situation at my dad's church. He's no longer the pastor. And Shannon, we we go to bed, and Shannon says, you just sounded a little high on your horse tonight, if I might be honest. Just the way that you kind of, as a third party, spouted off about what they should be doing and shouldn't be doing. You just sounded a little, and the next morning, on a cup of coffee, um, sometimes it takes like three or four cups of coffee for me to say, I'm sorry, okay? But I, I hugged my mom, and I just said, Mom, I'm sorry if I came off as, uh, as omniscient, I'm not in your contact. I'm not in the church. I'm sorry if I opined when I shouldn't have. And and let me tell you, she hugged me and she said, Zach, I so appreciated what, now I'm not saying this is the way it always ends up. Okay. A lot of times, Shannon will say, "Thank you for saying you're sorry. You're right. You were an idiot. Let's move on." No, but in this case, my mom said, "Thank you, Zach, so much. It was so wise. What you had, we really appreciated that. It was a different angle. We hadn't thought of it." And what I'm saying is, it invited her into deeper relationship with me. My apology. Apologies are invi- they create safety and security in friendship, and it leads to a reduction, not an expedition, of grumbling in the church. When we say I'm sorry to each other, when we say I'm sorry, we do less grumbling and we do more persevering and more enduring. And let's face it, what is the alternative to saying we're sorry? What's the alternative? Life weighs us down. I grumble and respond as though the world revolves around me. That creates more conflict, does it not, in relationships when I grumble and complain. And those conflicts create additional bridges burned... Additional anxieties, additional weight, additional worry, and before you know it, I'm weighed down even more, yes? It's like a crazy cycle. Trust this morning that James loves the church. He's a great pastor, this younger brother of Jesus. He's trying to show us all, and he reminds us, That the judge, Jesus Christ, is standing at the door. He uses those words. He says, stop grumbling at each other. Jesus Christ, he's standing at the door. In other words, not every injustice will be corrected in this life. It's ultimately Jesus Christ who will judge us. Let me assure you, Jeffrey Epstein will see Jesus Christ standing at the door. Anybody anybody who has not received the penalty due them on this earth will see Jesus Christ standing at the door. It's what the Bible teaches. It's not us who judge. I will admit that in my fallenness I was angry. I was angry that such a wealthy financier, such a wealthy businessman who took advantage of kids that he would not receive the full penalty in this life for he he would never receive it anyway. But that his life is cut short shorter than justice would be served. I was upset about it. Theologically, I ought not to be. We aren't the judges, are we? Jesus Christ will stand at the door, James is telling us. Even in the face of injustice, we're to demonstrate forbearance and perseverance. James 5, verses 10 through 11, let's move on. As an example of suffering and patience, he says, and he, as an example of suffering and patience, true or false, it's hard to bring those two things together. We've mentioned they're indirectly correlated. What a pairing, suffering and patience. Wouldn't you agree that typically it's suffering or patience? <laughs> One or the, or the other. It's easy to be patient when we're experiencing pleasure. But James says suffering and patience are, are to be brought together. And this takes the grace of God. This takes the power of the Spirit. We're thinking, who on earth might, I've, I've read the Bible stories, who might James be thinking of when he's about to give us an example of both suffering and patience in the same individual? And he says, first, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. For example, behold, we consider those blessed who remained what? steadfast. They persevered. They endured. The prophets of the Bible, make no mistake, they are admirable. They are steadfast. They are truthful. They spoke in the most tumultuous of times. They were the Elijahs. They were the Elishas. They were the Daniels. They were the Isaiahs. They were the Nehemiahs. They saw the most amazing miracles. They saw lions become kittens They saw fire descend from heaven and lap up water that was poured on a sacrifice, thinking the God of the Israelites couldn't possibly burn it up. How many of you are like, it'd be so cool to be a prophet and to see God move like that, right? They also spoke so boldly to kings that they were murdered violently. John the Baptist's head you may recall was served on a dinner plate to the king. Here's what Hebrews 11:35 through 48 says about the prophets. Some were tortured if you can even imagine this, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Now, how many of you are like, it'd be so cool to be a prophet. We consider them heroes, but in their day they were they were villains. We need to be very careful as a as a tangent when we say things like this. We're just being persecuted for our faith here in America. Not exactly. It's not apples to apples. Let me challenge you this morning not to bring the suffering of the martyrs down to the level of not being able to pray in school. There's a difference. James continues in verse 11. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. This is a second example. You've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate And merciful. Uh, You may or may not be familiar with Job. I'd encourage you to go home and read the book of Job. If not, um, we won't do that this morning. It would take us a very long time. It will take you a while, but it's a great book. I'll summarize for you quickly. Job was godly, very godly. And early in the book, Job says, My kids threw a party. Uh, Again, summary. My kids threw a party. Maybe they sinned against God. Maybe they didn't sin against God. I'm not sure, so I'm going to offer a sacrifice to God to confess their potential sins. How many of you would say that's pretty godly? As a parent, I'm way too busy confessing the actual sins of my children to God to even think about their potential sins. Job, in advance, confessing potential sins of his kids, trying to stay holy, keep his family holy in the eyes of God, really godly, loves the Lord, serves the Lord, knows the Lord, and, and he's very healthy. He's in great shape. He has no injuries. He has no illnesses. He's very wealthy. He has a ton of real estate. He has a huge portfolio. He's built a monstrous company he's a very successful man and then something happens and we are privy to it as readers of the book but he was not privy to it as he was living his life the Bible allows us to kind of peer behind the curtain and see even backstage and we see this conversation happening between Satan and and God and, and, and Job's life as a result of this conversation Satan comes to God and Satan says you know the only reason God that Job loves you is because you've blessed him. That's it. You take away his health, you take away his wealth, you take away all of the blessings, he'll curse your name. And so God, having confidence in his kid, removes his hand of protection from Job's life and he gives Satan permission, basically. I won't get into all the theology and the whys this morning, it's too deep for our purposes, but I'll tell you that Satan runs amok in the life of Job. His ten children, ten children, if you can imagine this, die at the hands of Satan. Um, Parents, why don't you just put yourself in this position emotionally for just a moment. Let's just pause and allow you to think of of, of what that might be like. Personalize it to you. Four kids, two kids, one kid. And all of them are dead. Ten coffins, ten holes in the ground. Life ceased just like that. Not only this, he goes bankrupt. He loses everything, he loses his health. Boils break out over his whole body. He sits in the dirt in so much pain that he just takes broken pieces of pottery and scratches himself and, and, and cleans out the wounds with fragments of clay. He loses his reputation because everybody wonders why. Why? Everybody has this karma-like approach of interpreting his condition and says, well, you must have deserved this. You must have earned this. The only thing that Job did not lose was his wife and these kind of quasi-friends that he had. And neither of them, neither of them, the, the wife nor the friends, were an encouragement to him in his suffering. Job's wife's advice was for him to cuss God out and die, and be murdered by God. That was his, how many of you are like, well, that's really encouraging. Thanks, sweetheart. That's kind of you to say. I'll add those to my options as I'm considering where to go with this all. Oh. And then his friends, they are like people with, that are Bible college graduates with zero pastoral ministry experience. And they sit there articulating finer points of doctrine without in any way entering into his suffering with him. Without any empathy. Without any possibility that he wasn't in charge of his own fate at this point. You must be so bad, they said to him. (laughs) Anybody have a religious friend like that, by the way? those people drive me nuts can i just have a moment of clarity transparency vulnerability when you get like into a car bump up and somebody says ah oh, you need to pray more you just your your relationship with god you must not be enjoying his favor in your life okay if i were to give you an emoji to communicate my emotions right now it would be like the eye roll okay it's frustrating Um, these are the only people left in Job's life. You know what? Job, in spite of all of it, did not, this is what James wants us to see, he did not deny God. He didn't. And life with God is like that. Even Jesus had moments like that. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was wrestling with the the idea, with the load that he was carrying. He was on his way to the cross. He even asked his father this question, if you'll remember. Why have you, what? Forsaken me. Jesus has those moments. Job had those moments. Job, there's a major difference between struggling with God and denying God. Job asked a lot of why's. He sought a lot of clarity from God. He sought understanding. There were moments in Job's life of unbelief even. But in the story, Job continues. He doesn't deny God. And you know what happens? In the end, he gets his health back. He gets his wealth back. Um, and, and And a lot of times we get real happy for him at this point in the reading. But the reality is he did not get the same 10 kids back. How many of you know that when you lose a pet, you can't just replace it with another pet? Just because you have another child doesn't mean you can replace the one you've lost. All that to say this, James is trying to communicate to us, be like Job. Be like the prophets. Be like Job. Imitate, by the grace of God, Job. This is what a righteous person looks like, James says. And we may say, it's not fair. It's not fair to compare my struggles to Job's. Those are extreme cases, the prophets. And maybe that is exactly why James is giving us extreme cases. So that the people of God might say, you know what? We're carrying a load, but it's not that load. Our struggles are weighty, but they're not that heavy by the grace of God. And let me tell you this in conclusion. Because I'm your pastor, I love you very much. I am inwardly celebrating this morning that the text gives us a context to say what I'm about to say. Almost Everybody quits too soon. The whole purpose of chapter five is perseverance, steadfastness in struggle. Almost everybody quits too soon. They quit on their spouse. They quit on their friends. They quit on their church. They quit on their life. They quit because they're not patient. I'm not saying there are no biblical grounds for divorce. I'm not saying God doesn't navigate us into and out of change. I'm saying that our culture is hardwired to quit. James is saying if you wait, God will grow you to become the person that he wants you to be and will produce much fruit. And listen to what he says in verse 11. Then you will have seen the purpose of the Lord. Only if you persevere and don't quit will you see the purpose of God. Only if you hang in there, only down the road will you look back and be able to picture the very purpose of God. Let's pray. Father, I just pray, uh, as someone who, Lord, is even inwardly grieving this morning over having quit something. I just pray, God, that you would help us persevere. That you would give us the grace and the power of your Holy Spirit to be patient, to wait on you, to endure, to not run, to remain steadfast in the mighty, powerful name of Jesus. James' older brother. Amen.